Okay, so there's lots of details for you, and I hope you got it even in the midst of the little bit of glitch there. One offering, two countries, three projects for you to participate in. Ha. See what I did there, for you to participate in. All right, you all wait for you to participate in. All right, so there you go. Don't just, don't just get lost in the details. Remember this. We have as believers in Jesus Christ the opportunity to take resources that we could invest in something that will rust, rot, or get ripped off, or we can invest in something that will last forever. And so that's the privilege that we want you to be praying about for the next week and how you might invest what God has given you to manage for the sake of his kingdom. So let's ask the Lord and let's bring, as Jonathan said before we watched, let's take the opportunity to bring a little taste of heaven to earth in our giving. As we think about missions here at CFC, I do want to recognize that for 31 years, Wendy Graves has been a part of Christian Family Chapel staff, and every one of those years, she's been involved in helping grow and develop our missions program here at the chapel. And after 31 years, she is stepping off of staff tomorrow. So if you know Wendy, would you just tell her how grateful you are for her ministry here at CSC. I am so grateful and want to encourage you as you look back on the last 30 years, it'd be awesome for all of us to say, no matter what I did occupationally, uh, I made the most of the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing, not only in this community, but to the ends of the earth. So very grateful for Wendy's ministry. Before we jump into the scriptures, as we think about the work of God around the world, uh, I want us to pray together for our nation. So whether you're here on campus or you're online, let's take a few minutes and pray. And specifically, here's how I want us to think about our praying. As followers of Jesus, we uphold the sanctity of human life. And the sanctity of human life is more than simply being opposed to abortion. The sanctity of human life is important from before birth until death. And therefore, as Christian citizens of the U.S., we recognize that our pledge says that we are one nation under God. But when we look, as many great things about our country, when we look at our country as one nation under God, uh, our racial division does not reflect the sanctity of human life. And our practice of abortion does not reflect the sanctity of human life. So very specifically, I want to give us a moment to pause and pray here in your homes. If you'd bow with me, and would you lift up in the quietness of your own seat prayers to God that there would be racial reconciliation, that all people would be important to the Lord. And would you now cry out to God very specifically that 
the taking of the lives of the unborn would be a practice that would end in America. Lord, we come to you because our hope is in you. It's not in a political party. It's not in human agenda. But Lord, we know that that you work your purposes. And we know that in your heart, and therefore our heart as your people, is that all people are important, no matter the color, born or unborn. And so we ask that our pledge would be more than words. It would be an even greater reality in this country. And that we as a church would be your instruments for people finding life in you and living out this life under God. I do pray for our governing authorities that they would walk in wisdom and truth. And where they are not functioning as their role intends as ministers of God, that your spirit would bring conviction and change of heart. And there would be in the hearts of those who are our leaders, a desire to please you and to honor you, to live and lead under God. Would you work in us and through us, that we would be a blessing, that we would be a taste of heaven on earth in this country to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Would you grab your Bibles now with me, whether again on campus or in your home, grab a Bible if you would, whether hard copy, just want you to be able to look at the scriptures together. So Genesis 22 is our passage today. And this is in our series, Friendship with God. We have been tracing God and his relationship with a man named Abram who became Abraham. And we have looked at some kind of ugly moments in Abraham's life, yes? And we've thought, wow, that's not so great for a friend of God. But we recognize that In spite of our sin, God is greater. And today, as we come to Genesis 22, it's going to be not another ugly moment in Abraham's life. It's going to be a defining moment in Abraham's life. And the reason, again, that I think it's going to be so important that we look at Abraham today is that as we look at his life and what it meant for him to live out his relationship with God, I think we're going to be both challenged and encouraged in some very significant personal ways. So let me read for us. You follow along in the scriptures, the opening 10 verses to Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So warning, this is going to be a little over the top. Human sacrifice is what Genesis 22 is about. 
Offer your son, your only son, as a burnt offering. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Pause for a moment. Can I have your eyes? Put yourself in the text. When you see the place where the human sacrifice of your son is intended to take place, can you imagine the pit in your stomach? It's been there for three days. It just got a lot more real now when you see the place. Verse five, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad, his son Isaac, will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham, dad, said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now wait, whoa. Did God really intend for Abraham to take the raised knife and slay his son? Now before you, no, 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 before you answer, but don't act like, oh, I know this story. Put yourself in Abraham's place in his sandals with his knife raised and his son bound and laid on top of the wood. Does Abraham think God intends him to slay his son? Yeah, yeah, he absolutely thinks that. But that is the crucial question as I read that text. Did God really intend for Abraham to actually kill Isaac? And again, we're reading a historical narrative, so you may know the story, you may know the end of the movie, and lose the tension of the movie. <laughs> and in that moment, Abraham believes with all his heart that he is supposed to take the raised knife and slay his son. But how do you do that? I mean... It started out just a road trip. And then son got a little confused with, I see the fire, I see the wood, I see the knife, but I don't see the offering. Dad? And then it moved from confusion to, what's up? That after they built the altar together, that he then tied up his son. And it got really frightening when then he took him and laid him on top of the wood, and now the knife's out. Ever ask yourself, if you're dead, do I lay him 
face up and so he watches me slay him? Or do I lay him face down and stab him in the back? There's no good option. How is it? See you there now, maybe a little more? Some tears, yes? Are there tears there at that moment? Come on, folks. Are there tears? Absolutely. There's agony. I can't imagine what's happening in his belly. For the son or dad. Knife raised. How? How could he possibly do this? Well, the scripture tells us. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, see, this is a reference back to what we just read, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, what was the promise? That, that I'll make you a great nation, that I'll give you a son, and through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But now the knife is raised over that son of promise, and it's about to go down. How could he do that to his only begotten son? Verse 19 tells us, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Now, I don't know if you know that the Bible said that. The reason, and we talk about a defining moment in your life where there's been a lot of failure of faith, but this is like the pinnacle, the hall of fame of moment of faith where your knife is raised over your son and you're about to follow through because you believe. If I slay him, God will raise him from the dead. Now, why would, why would Abraham believe that God would raise him from the dead? He had to. He, he had to raise him from the dead. See, the verse I skipped, verse 18 in between, was this. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. So Abraham's going. See, this is, this is a phenomenal moment of Abraham going. It doesn't make sense unless I do what God says and then he has to raise him from the dead because he promised. And if any, Abraham's learned anything in his life, it's that God keeps his promises. That if I slay him, he'll raise him from the dead. Now, keep it real. Would you have that much faith? To obey God, believing he would keep his promise to that degree? You see, Abraham says, does God intend me to kill him? Yes, but he'll raise him from the dead because he's already promised the blessing would continue through Isaac. So his answer is yes, and he'll raise him because he will not deny himself. Keep it real. When you're tested, does your faith believe in the promises of God? Now, what Abraham didn't maybe yet know, but you and I can know because we have 
scripture that Abraham didn't have at the time. See, I can turn in my Bible and go, did God intend Abraham to actually kill Isaac? Well, no, James chapter one says this, but guess what? Abraham could look at me, you and I and go, well, it'd have been nice to have James one, but I didn't have James one. Well, why? What's James one say? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted, not tested, tempted. Let no one say I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And say it with me, he himself does not tempt anyone. That would have been nice to know. Did, in hindsight, did God intend? Absolutely not. He couldn't intend because that would be God tempting, telling Abraham to do something that would be sin. And God cannot and never will command a person to sin. He won't. Understand, it's not that he just doesn't command you to sin. He doesn't tempt you to sin. Ever. And it would have been a sin, Deuteronomy. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates. They have done for their gods, for they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God declares, that's detestable. I would not ever ask my children to do that for me. He doesn't tempt you to sin. And he certainly doesn't command you to sin. And in hindsight now, we also recognize, when you look at it, third, that the command to Abraham was to, to offer. To offer. Did Abraham offer? Yeah, yes, he built the altar, he laid the wood, he bound the sun, he laid him on top. The knife was raised. The offering was, the offering was made. He had every intent to follow through, believing God would raise him. The offering. But remember, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And so Abraham does thinking. He'll follow through, and God will raise him from the dead. In fact, did you notice what he told to his servants? We will go and worship in, verse 5, if you're not sure where this is, verse 5, and we, we will return to you. In other words, I have no intention to come back until God raises him from the dead. When we come back, we, would it be a day, three days? But we are going to come back. What Abraham didn't foresee was this. Next verse. Verse 11. The angel Lord called to him with the knife raised, the sun bound. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham's going, here I am. I was here last time. I'm real. Uh, talk to me. Don't do not stretch out your hand against the lad. 
and do nothing to him. Whoo! Okay, can you look up here for a moment? I've tried to put myself there. Hand raised, tears streaming, tears on the boy. I don't know if he's face up or face down. But when God says, do nothing to him, what's your next move? Yeah, do, do you drop the knife, but not over him? Do you, do, you, do you drop the knife? Do you fall down? Do you climb up on him and hug him? Yeah, I mean, but at some point, you're like, God, why'd you do that? Right? I mean, all of us have had a, a, and this isn't a joke, but a joke played on us that got too real, and then when it kind of got past, here you go. Why'd you do that to me? Too far, too much. Too far, too much. Now maybe you go, no, you're not allowed to say that to the Lord. Oh, I don't know about that. God, why? And the Lord answers. The Lord answers why he would test Abraham in such an extreme way his answer to why why would you put me through those three days or longer (laughs) why why'd you wait till he was bound why'd you wait till he saw me with the knife out Do nothing for him, for now I know. I know, the Lord says, that you fear God. Now, uh, there's, there's a lot of craziness that says, hey, don't fear the Lord. I want to say to you, fear the Lord. I, I don't mean like afraid of him because he's capricious and unpredictable and unkind. He's cruel. I mean, fear the Lord for who he is and all of his authority and all his glory and all his worth. Fear the Lord. Hold him in, watch, highest regard. Hold him above all things because when you hold him above all things, what won't you do? What's it say? withheld anything else, even your son, your only son, the son you love. See, fear the Lord, hold him above all else, because if you hold him above all else, you will not withhold anything else from him. And if you, my friends and me, when I withhold something from the Lord, it's reflective. I do not, what the Lord say? I don't fear the Lord. It's appropriate to fear the Lord. He is not a cosmic puppy to cuddle. Fear the Lord. And then you won't withhold anything. Withhold and you don't 
fear of the Lord. Now, what's striking to me is this, that the Lord says, for now I know. Does that not strike you? Was God really uncertain like, Man, I wonder where Abraham and I are. How close are we? Are we this close? Are we this close? You know, does he hold me here or here? I wonder where. Does the Lord wonder? Okay, let's be clear. The Lord, we've seen it. He always knows the heart. Remember that great passage in 1 Samuel 16 where Samuel is told to anoint a new king and he lines up the sons of Jesse and he's like, oh, that's the one. Oh, okay, that's the one. Oh, that's the one. And finally, the Lord stops him and says, Samuel, what's up with you people? You always look at the outward appearance, but I look at the... I look at the heart. I know the heart. I know the heart of those guys and I know the heart of that one. So did he already know the heart of Abraham? Absolutely he knew the heart of Abraham. Who didn't know the heart of Abraham? Abraham didn't know the heart of Abraham. And so watch my friends. When the Lord tests you and he never tempts you but when he tests you it's not because he's trying to figure out where you are. He is revealing to you where he is in your life. And you know what? You don't really know until the test hits. Right? I mean, just think school. I thought I knew it, and then I took the test. Whoops. Or, I wasn't sure I knew it, and aced it. Ever ask yourself, I wonder if I had to die, you know, if persecution comes to America, am I prepared to die for the Lord? Have you ever asked yourself that? Uh, as I watch what's happening in California, makes my wife nervous, but I ask, am I prepared to go to pr- prison for the sake of teaching the scriptures? And you know what? You can wonder about that all day, but then a test will do what? It'll reveal. So what's God doing here? God is revealing to Abraham where he is in his faith in God. And what gets revealed is, I'll do what you said and then you'll do what you must, which is raise him from the dead if you want me to kill him. That's amazing. (laughs) I can't imagine, honestly, I would have come to that conclusion. I wish I could say, oh, I would have been right there with him. I don't know. But a test reveals. And you know what else a test does? Watch. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so uh, the reality is that that I I think I know where I'm but a test reveals and not only reveals it has the opportunity to grow what endurance to to teach me He'll be faithful. I don't need to run. I don't need to lie. I don't need to deceive. I don't need to cheat. I don't need to go look for pleasure on my own. He will be faithful. Faith grows 
when it's tested. And so I'm with you, friends. Nobody likes the test. Nobody likes the test. Everybody wants to have endurance. (laughs) I mean, when you're like, I'll just go run 26 miles. No. You got to work up to that. There's got to be lots of tests to build endurance. And if your faith and my faith are going to grow, it's going to involve tests. Now, here's why we would count it all joy. Because my greatest test will often become my greatest testimony. Is not Abraham's greatest testimony of his faith that the knife was out, the sun was bound, and it was raised, and he was prepared to do what God said, believing God will raise him from the dead. That's his greatest story. Why? Because it was his greatest test. And your greatest test, the one that, that you and I, when we think, when we read this story, the one, watch, the one that you and I go, oh God, please don't test me like that. Do you not read this story and think that? Oh God, please don't test me like that. <laughs> if you don't ask that, if you don't feel that in you, you're missing the point here. If you're not going, oh Lord. <laughs> but count it. All joy, knowing the testing becomes the platform for the testimony. And in fact, just think of it the other way. For every single one of us, if we have a testimony, there's a story, there's a test to it. Of how I found and discovered who the Lord is because of a circumstance, a situation that I would have never wanted to endure. Second reason God tests Abraham in such an extreme way is to provide a foreshadowing of the gospel. So this is unique to Abraham. This is, point one is true for all of us, that the testing is for the growing of our faith. For Abraham, this is a unique foreshadowing of the gospel. A foreshadowing in this way. Verse 13, go back to our text. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering. And this is what's so so awesome. Say it. In the place of his son. Never been so happy to see a ram caught in the thicket. Never been so happy to take the son bound on the offering off, take the ram and put it on. It is a foreshadowing of the substitutionary work of Jesus, where the scripture says of the substitutionary work of Jesus, Christ also died for sins once for all. The just For the unjust, the ram for the son, Isaac, so that he might bring us to God. You see, the foreshadowing that I don't want you to miss this morning is this, is that you and I, every single one of us listening right now, are guilty before God because of our sin, and there's nothing we could ever do to resolve or absolve our own guilt. Only God himself 
could take that guilt upon himself because he was without guilt, because he was without sin. And so Jesus became for us what that ram was for Isaac. He died in our place. He took our punishment upon himself. So to believe in Jesus is to believe that I am guilty before God, that I deserve the punishment, but that he took it for me in order that he might bring us to God. See, if you think you're working your way back to God, you're not because you can't. If you're trying to clean your life up in order to get closer to God, that's not the way it works. The only way you become back in relationship with your God and creator is to believe that Jesus became your substitute, that he died in your place, that he became the ram was for Isaac. That's the work of Jesus for each of you and for me, our substitute. And the scripture says that if you believe in him, you'll be saved. Which then brings out this huge question. What's it mean to believe? What's it mean to have faith? And this becomes a, not only a foreshadowing of the substitutionary work of Jesus, it becomes the foreshadowing of the nature of faith that saves, of believing that saves. And this is not me connecting these two. James chapter 2, New Testament letter, connects the nature of saving faith and what Abraham did with Isaac. Let me read it for us. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's the question. What type of faith is required to save? If a brother or sister, here's an example. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? It's no good. Here's the point. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. It's like words that don't help. Faith that do not have that does not have accompanying works. Verse 18. Another example. Someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Are they saved? Are demons saved? No. Even though they believe God is one. No. Intellectual knowledge won't save. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Here comes Abraham and Isaac. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up 
Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, you may be going, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you say every week we are saved by faith, not by works. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Hang on. Was he not justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, let me unpack this for us. Why was he reckoned to be righteous and called a friend? Why? Because he... As he believed, and it was reckoned of his righteousness. Do you remember from Genesis when Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Genesis 15 is what you were wanting to say. Genesis 15, verse 6. When did he offer up Isaac? Genesis 22, some more than 20 years later. So was he saved in Genesis 15 or was he saved in Genesis 22? It says he was saved in Genesis 15 when he believed. How do we know that his believing, though, was more than just words, be warm, be filled, or just knowledge? God is one. How do we know? By what he did. Did his work save him? No. His believing saved him. But there is a nature of believing that James doesn't want us to miss by the life of Abraham. Believing the saving nature of faith is it's more than words. It's more than intellectual believing. It's more than just knowing the right thing. Because there's a lot of people who believe that God exists. And there's even people who say, yeah, God exists. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross. But have never taken the action of one who doesn't just say they believe that. And doesn't just know that it's true. They believe it. When they believe it, then there are revealing actions. In other words, I can do good works absent from faith. This is why you can say, well, my neighbor doesn't believe in Jesus, but they are such good people. How can you say they're not saved? Because you can do good works absent of faith, but saving faith can never be absent of good works. It's the nature of of faith. It doesn't mean my work saved me. It means my evidence demonstrate my faith is truly faith and not just words and not just knowledge. That is, so in Genesis 22, a foreshadowing of the gospel. Don't miss it. Jesus is your substitute. And to believe in him is just not saying right words. It's not just knowing right things. It's knowing the truth and then responding to it. And what is that response that the scripture says? We repent, we believe, we receive. That's saving faith.
I repent, I change my mind. I cannot save myself and I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus was the substitutionary death in my place. And I receive it as a gift. I don't earn it by my good works. That's saving faith. Foreshadowed in Genesis 22. Third, why would God do this to Abraham? To increase his confidence in God to provide in any and every circumstance. Now, why do I, the key word here, key word, God to provide. And I say in any and every circumstance, because once you have bound your son, put him on the altar and raised the knife, everything is peanuts after that. Right? Right. There's not like, well, that was like a 5.7 test, but man, there's, no. That's the top of the Richter scale. Everything's less. His confidence in God to provide. Now, why do I say that? Back to the text, Genesis 22, next verse. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. He's going to name that place. Where'd you go? To the place I've called the Lord will provide because I have experienced God providing for me in a way I will never, ever, ever forget. I mean, would you ever say to him, Abraham, you remember that time you took Isaac up? Uh, you know, it's been 170 years. I'm not really sure I remember that anymore. You never forget that. You never forget binding your son. You never forget knife raised over your son. And you never forget God saying, don't do anything. I have a substitute. Praise you, God. Do so you have the confidence that God will provide? See, I love what Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter four. He says to them this. Paul was a, before I read this, okay, let me go back because you're gonna read it anyway. Before I read Philippians four, here's the context. Paul had been sent out as a missionary and he was going from city to city proclaiming the gospel. People were hearing and believing and churches were starting. And once a church would begin, then he would go to the next city. So he writes the Philippians to tell them thank you that when he had moved on and was in Thessalonica on another city, that while he was in that city, this city that he had previously been in Philippi gave to him financially to do in Philippi, excuse me, in Thessalonica what he had done in Philippi. So they were financially investing in him. Kind of like we're asking you to financially invest in the Moronis and what's going on in Spain there. Because he used to be here. I first met Dominic when he was a single and working at UF on campus with Great Commission Ministries. And now he's in Spain planning a church. So Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So they had provided for him to continue doing. And he's going, thank you. You've met my need. You have been my provider. And now watch what he says next, verse 19. And my God will supply all. 
all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, I know you gave to me. Here's my promise to you. It's raining. (laughs) Here's my promise. The scripture says, when you give and watch, don't withhold for yourself. But when you give for the sake of my kingdom, you know what I do with those open hands? I refill them for what you need. No one will ever, this is the absolute promise of scripture, no one will give unto the Lord for the kingdom of God and then find themselves going, God, you didn't provide for me. Now, plenty of people can go spend their money on everything they want and then go, oh, Lord, uh, what's what's this? You'll supply all my needs. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Did you catch that this promise is specifically for those who didn't withhold for themselves, but they did not withhold from the Lord? See, the great provision, the great promise of the Lord will provide is for folks who don't withhold from the Lord. Abraham would have never named the place the Lord will provide had he said, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking my son, my only son, the son I love. He only experienced the Lord because he feared the Lord and did not withhold from the Lord. So let's make it real and personal. What is most fearful for you to relinquish to God? You understand? And I use fearful for a reason. Because he didn't fear the, he feared the Lord and didn't withhold anything. So what is most fearful, not to the Lord, but fearful to ourselves, that we would go, I cannot relinquish that to God. Maybe it's your health. Or maybe you're going, no, I'm with Abraham. It'd be my family. Or, man, I have aspirations. I've talked to lots of young men who are like, no, I've had all my life this desire to do this. I'm really afraid to. Lay that out before the Lord. I want to withhold the plans I've had. Or my wealth, I want to hold on to it. I want to give a little bit, but I want to hold on to most of it. My comfort or my safety, my security. Or the comfort, safety, and security of the people that I love. Or prestige, or you may go, oh, Doug, you're missing me completely, but I know what I'd fill in the blank with. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Did you get a card when you came in? If you didn't get a card, raise your hand, and uh, our ushers in the back will pass something, pass a card out. It's something that, it's one thing to sit there and think about it. It's another thing to, to take this card And write at the top, Lord, I will not withhold from you. 
And here's my encouragement. Fear the Lord. And then write down the thing that you go, oh Lord, please don't ever do this. But in fear of the Lord, Lord, I will not withhold. And then identify that which would be most difficult for you to release your grip on. And it might not just be one thing. Maybe one of the things or two of the three, two or three of the things that I named, it may be something else. But there's, now, is this is the same as actually experiencing it? No, no. But to acknowledge, I relinquish it. You've probably noticed, maybe you haven't. If you're watching online and you were on at the beginning, I had invited you to grab a slip of paper. Uh, if, you don't, if you haven't done this and you're watching, grab some, a three-by-five card or a slip of paper where you would, because it's, it's significant to actually not just think it, but to write it down. Here in our on campus in our auditoriums, I'm going to invite us to come place them on these two altars here. The way we'll do it is this little mechanic, so can I have your attention for just a moment? This side, if you'll come and lay your card on that altar and then go back to your seat. The center, from this side over, you go to this side, the center, this side, you come to this one. And then go the whole way around to the back to get back to your seat this side if you'll lay them here. But here's the extra. After you lay them on the altar, in the corners are the elements of the Lord's Supper. Because this is the reminder. He not only says lay it, he says I will be your provider. And here's what I don't want you to miss. No matter how precious it is that you write on here and leave it on the altar, what is the promise? That he loves you fully and completely, could not love you more. He is greater than anything you would lay on the altar. Did you hear that? This is why though we don't wish it to be true, By faith, we believe he is greater and it's been demonstrated in his son. He is greater than anything we'd leave on the altar. So if you have your things written down, drop it, place it on the altar, grab the elements and then return to your seat and in your own time, as the band sings, in your own time, before the Lord, you take the elements. We often do it together. You take it in your own time before the Lord. And when you've taken it and you want to join in in what is being declared in song, feel free to do so. But this is our act of worship to the Lord. So if you're ready, let's move from the front to the back, lay on the altar, and then take the elements. Let's go ahead and begin. Mountains made of solid gold 
riches that could buy my dreams You are better than all these things The prettiest face to turn their eyes Beauty that could hypnotize The open doors that looks may bring You are better than all these things taken elements uh, let me invite you to again with that uh, bread that wafer in your hand if you're at home if you've not taken yet simply take believing Jesus you are better than anything I've left on the altar As you take the cup, that you might take whatever you have at home and hear that, that plastic cup of juice and the reminder, Jesus, 
you are the well that will never run dry. Do you take in remembrance of your Savior? And let's together declare, this is our prayer. And Jesus, you are better than these things. Matt, would you? Jesus, you are better than all these things. Jesus, you are better than all these things. Father, we want to declare that to be true in this moment. We recognize that there will be many opportunities in the days ahead to declare you're better. Better than anything we'd be tempted to withhold. So would you find our faith to be genuine, real faith as we live with open hands, with all the things that we do love and rightfully love, but never love more than you. Lord, I thank you that you have promised that to the open hands you will fill with your goodness, with your greatness, and with your faithfulness. We love you, and we go now in faith that you are our great God. Thank you for expressing it in your Son and our Savior, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being with us this morning. Would you go and live by faith in the greatness of your God? God bless.